Welcome to Simple and Deep, a podcast about the power of engaging our story to love fully. I'm your host, Wisteria Edwards, and I'm happy you're here. Let's get started. Welcome back to Simple and Deep. I am super excited. I am joined by my friend, Dr. Holly Oxhandler today, and uh, we actually met through Hope Writers, and I am thrilled to have her here because she is fantastic at what she does. So I'm going to kick this off by welcoming you, Holly. Thank you so much, Wisty. It is so good to be here with you today. Yes. And go ahead and just start off with telling us a little bit about yourself and what you're passionate about, and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Well, so my my name is Dr. Holly Hawkshandler. I am um, an associate dean for research and faculty development at Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. I have been at Baylor since about 2014 and have been studying the intersection of faith and mental health for the last uh, like decade or so. I had worked in the field for a while after getting my undergrad degree in psychology. I did some work with older adults with anxiety and depression. And while I was doing that clinical work with them, I recognized pretty clearly that the role of faith, of of their faith, was really important in their coping and their healing with their mental health struggles. And so when I had started my master's in social work, I had started to see that this wasn't an area that we talked about very much and have really devoted my life's work to this intersection to better understand it in terms of what mental health care providers think and do when it comes to talking about clients' faith, but then also what are your client preferences in terms of their faith within mental health treatment and some other relevant areas around that. And then I also I also co-host a weekly podcast called CXMH, which hosts conversation on this intersection with my friend Robert Vore. Um, and I am married. My husband, Corey, and I have been together now since 2004, 2005. So we started dating in 2005. And then we have two little ones, Callie and Oliver, who are eight and four and a half. We're in Waco, and hopefully that's a pretty a little bit of a summary, kind of on a little bit a little bit of a background about me. Absolutely, and what I love about you, Holly, is that you're very open about uh, that. This is a journey for you as you discover this intersection and how you're continually going after these big ideas, mm-hmm. as how your own story has led you to this, and and I. I was really thrilled because recently you've done on your blog a segment about self-care for helpers. Let's start off by just kind of talking a little bit about that. What what kind of prompted that for you? And then what kind of response have you had to that? Oh, I love that. I love that. That's such a good question. So so this actually goes, honestly, it, it, for me, it goes back to when I started my master in social work degree in 2009. I had a, a segment within my first semester that was focused on self-care. My professor, Sandra Lopez, who's well-known within the Houston community, she actually really taught us about self-care and how important it is for social workers and recognizing how how difficult that this is for social workers for a number of reasons. I later ended up taking a class with her on this topic that was called self-care for helping professionals. And 
just really spent that time to dive deep into it and devoted a a good amount of my time during my master's program thinking about ways around how do we help helping professionals to think about self-care because I began to recognize if we're not taking good care of ourselves, um, it's really hard for us to care for others. And at that point, I was mainly focused on this for social workers, recognizing that social workers have a number of occupational hazards that include stress and burnout, compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, and more. And just really wanted to ensure we were equipping these helpers well around this area. So so that was back in, like I said, like 2009, 2010-ish. And I continued to kind of hone in and do work in that in terms of my own self-care plan. I, as, as nerdy as this sounds, I created a self-care plan for myself each semester that was adapted to whatever I was juggling at that time to identify some strategies and some skills that I could lean on to care for myself in terms of my my mental health, my physical health, my social support, and my spiritual health. And so I, pr- I practiced this myself for quite a while. And then I would say over the last year or so, I began to recognize that you know, this is this is something that more folks need. I mean, since I've been at Baylor, I have offered some kind of self-care assignment for my students because, you know, we would do like an extra credit option where they would create a self-care plan and then write something up at the end of the semester telling me how they carried out their self-care plan and, and what impact it had on them. But then, as you noted, over the summer, I, I really started to see, oh, this this is beyond just my social work class and my students who need this. This is beyond just helping professionals. This is parents and teachers and caregivers and, of course, mental health care providers, but also faith leaders and individuals who are helping and caring for others in a number of different ways because... I I began to see the levels of burnout rising as we have been juggling so much through this pandemic and through so many things that we've been juggling as a nation. And so I really come from this understanding around self-care that, first of all, we are holistic beings. We do have these multiple areas of our lives that need to be tended to and cared for, including like I mentioned, our mental health, our physical health, our social support, and our spiritual health, but also the idea that we can't draw from an empty well. And if we are continuously giving without creating some space to to fill that well back up and to care for ourselves well, my concern is, you know, what is it that we're giving when we are at that point of burnout? And just purely recognizing that, you know, putting aside the fact that, you know, we want to make sure that our well is full as we go out and help others, but also just to remember that we are worth caring for ourselves, that we are beloved within my faith tradition. I believe that we each embody the image of God within us. And so we are worth caring for ourselves well. But there is this this other side to it that, you know, again, like I said, if, if we're not caring for ourselves well, I, I worry about how we are able to care for others well, if again, if we're not caring for ourselves. So that's that's a bit of the backstory to this. Right. 
I, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, I was thinking about the term secondary trauma and most of my career, I have worked with children of poverty and there is com- a thing called compassion fatigue and secondary trauma that mm-hmm. you working with children who are in deep emotional need. It's, it's exhausting. And I, I was curious, vicarious trauma, define that for me. You said that. What's vicarious trauma? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. So vicarious trauma is, you know, we, in some ways there's almost like this progression of, of impact on the individual where stress is something where we're, we're just, our ability to cope with the current situation exceeds our resources to cope with that. But then vicarious trauma is a much higher end of that spectrum where, when we experience, well, actually, let me go back through the other ones just to, <laughs> to clarify. So so I, I explained what stress is with compassion fatigue. This is what we consider the cost of caring when we really we have empathy at its root where we are just we're just exhausted from the amount of caring that we are are trying to engage in secondary trauma is when we hear about another's traumatic experience and we are impacted by that even though we didn't necessarily walk through or experience that traumatic event we still are impacted by hearing another's traumatic story or situation now, vicarious trauma is when the helper or the social worker or whoever that person is who's holding that space to hear that story, when they begin to hear so many traumatic stories of, of from those around them, vicarious trauma is when their whole inner being is changed um, because of the ways in which they just keep hearing these traumatic stories without having a space to heal. And so their whole, I mean, the, the thing that makes vicarious trauma distinct is that their whole self is changed and, and transformed in a painful way after having heard all those traumatic stories. Does that kind of help make sense in terms of clarifying? Absolutely. I just wanted to clarify that because, you know, a lot of people think of trauma as this kind of ambiguous thing way out here that that hasn't really affected most of us. And now we're seeing things like generational trauma and we're seeing things that what trauma is is really when there's been too much or too little or it's like the extremes of a situation that our brain just can't wrap around. And it's like I, what I was hearing is with that vicarious trauma that it's just so much. And what happens is like they can't, their well is overflowing with everybody else's stories and there's no room for them anymore. Mm. And it's really important that we learn to balance why we're doing what we're doing. And as far as teachers are concerned, for me, this is a very gray area because we are commended on Pinterest and on Instagram and by other teachers. Oh my goodness, look at this room that she spent countless hours and, you know, thousands of dollars on. And yet mm. is she going home? Is she spending time with her family? Is she in debt now because she's trying to keep up with all the other teachers? And I think we have to be super careful. And I've learned more as I've worked with Fred Rogers' work that it's about being being more present and doing less. Mm. And my concern for teachers and parents right now, especially in our current situation with the pandemic, is that 
we are already at this vicarious state or we are already at this traumatic place. And so we have to be super careful as we're welcoming children back into our classrooms, whether it's a hybrid method or um, virtually we are working with traumatized people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've, yeah, I've spoken many times even to my own team. Like, this is trauma. I still have trauma left over from my students being yanked away from me in March. I never got to say goodbye to those kids. In fact, one of my stories is one of my little boys, his mom is homeschooling him now, but... I asked him, how do you like first grade? And he said, uh, I'm not in first grade because I never finished kindergarten. Mm. <laughs> like he didn't get to really finish. And yeah. I feel like I have two classes in this pandemic. I still have that emotional tie to the children that were taken by this pandemic from me. And then the ones that I'm trying to foster connection with now. Mm. And also the, it's just been so hard. It's been traumatic for parents who are trying to to be a teacher and an employee. And, and I think that we just start taking the things that really matter to us and putting them to the side. But those Mm. are saying the things that keep us well mentally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So talk about those, those components you were talking about. I've always thought of it like a table. Like if one thing gets off balance then everything's going to kind of slide off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I I think that's such a great analogy for this. And we do need to be taking, uh, we need to be paying attention to each of these different areas of our lives and not letting go, like not losing sight of how important each of them are in terms of caring for ourselves well. So certainly circling back to, I know I was talking about the self-care stuff a little bit earlier and like kind of what got me into that. And at this point, what I have available for folks is when they, on my website, they can sign up and get seven days of emails from me that walk them through each of these different areas and including, you know, why in the first place do we even need to be thinking about self-care? And especially during this time, as you we're just noting. And then moving through, you know, what does physical health or physical self-care look like and mental health self-care and paying attention to our social supports and networks and our spiritual self-care, which really is the heartbeat behind a lot of the research that I do is, again, looking at that intersection of faith and mental health. But then also paying attention to our schedules because, you know, as you just noted about how things can become off balance, a lot of times that is because we don't have limitless time and energy and and resources to be able to do everything all the time. And so paying attention to even our schedules and how how we pay or how we, you know, kind of find this balance between each of these areas, ultimately recognizing that self-care is a practice. And this is something that is not, you know, I've I, I noted that I've been kind of navigating this since, you know, the early days of working on my MSW program, but over 10 years ago, but it is still a practice for me. If I'm not paying attention to certain areas of my life, I will start to feel that wobbliness of like, oh, okay, I have not been going, you know, on my walks, or I have not been showing up to centering prayer. And so some of those edges, I think, start to show when I'm not taking care of of each of those areas. But, you know, I do know that 
when I devote that time and energy and effort into taking good care of myself, I am so much more present to and attentive to the needs of those around me. I can better discern what it is that those around me need, and I am better equipped to either meeting those needs myself or saying, no, I that is not mine to do but I can help you get connected with someone who can help you through that. But I know that when I am not, personally, when I am not taking care of myself well, as particularly in those areas, I'm just not as able, I'm not able to as clearly articulate you know, is this mine to do in this moment? Or what is it about the situation that I can help with? Or at what point am I giving more than I really have to give? And what is the cost of that? I don't know if if any of your listeners are, if, if they're familiar with the Enneagram, but, but for anyone who is, they it might be pretty obvious <laughs> which type I identify with, but I do identify with type two on the Enneagram, which is lovingly labeled as the helper or the giver. And and helpers do really, they are happy to just keep giving and giving and giving. That's just how we are wired. But putting that attention and energy into pouring into ourselves and caring for ourselves well really does allow us to show up more fully present to others. I I feel like I am more compassionate towards my husband, towards my kids. I am better able to meet the needs of my students, my colleagues. I know part of my role at Baylor is includes the faculty development side of my associate dean role. And so I feel like I'm better able to to be there to hold space for my faculty colleagues with what it is that they're navigating. And even just the strangers that I bump into in different situations, I feel like I'm I'm just, I'm able to hold that space, but that is, it's hard work to, it really is hard work to remember and to navigate that shift of, of caring for ourselves well, particularly so that we can help others and, and, and care for others well. It is a process. I think that, like you said, you're still working on it. And I think that we can get really focused on what we see someone doing well, and we think it's just going to be an automatic, like I make this one choice and mm. then making it, but like weight loss or like recovery or anything, it's, it's like a couple steps back, one to the right, back to the middle, like you fall down a lot. And it's, it's a process of just continuing to get up, continue. Yeah. And I like that you talked about recognizing when you're off balance and when you talked about scheduling, that's something I'm super passionate about as far as young children we have to stop over-scheduling kids. Hmm. Um, COVID has helped with that because a lot of things aren't open or are very limited. But in regular times, I have seen five and six-year-olds have so much in their schedule. They don't have time to go outside and get dirty and play. They are not hmm. right. They're at XYZ club. They are at these this many music lessons. They're just really over-scheduled. And when people are in their minivans eating McDonald's several times a week, you have to kind of go, hmm, am I in my car too much? And why am I in my car too much? Is it because I'm shuffling kids to everything? And sometimes we have to say, we're going to make a sacrifice of cutting some of these things out because we all need time to just be. Mm-hmm. 
And we have, we almost celebrate in our culture, in America at least, this idea of the busier you are, the more successful you are. And I recently read about Fred Rogers going up and he would take a weekend and he talked about driving up somewhere and being by himself and just praying and sleeping. And that's something I've tried to incorporate into my classroom is silence and quiet and that our brains actually repair in silence, that we synthesize in silence. Mm. And in such a busy, noisy world. And and it's I go fast. I think fast. I talk fast. But I've had to deliberately make a choice of where am I going to slow myself down and be quiet. Yeah. I believe that that's the only way that, at least in my faith tradition, that God is going to speak to me. He doesn't yell at me. He speaks very quietly. And he speaks to me in music. And he speaks to me in moments of just kind of thinking and being creative and and allowing the space. And I, you talked about holding space, and that might not be a term that some people are familiar with. Hmm. In your work, talk to me about holding space. What does that mean for you? Yeah, that's a such a good question. Gosh, there's so much I want to say about what you had just said, <laughs> but I will answer your question and then maybe circle back to what you, you had. Can totally circle. Okay. All right. All awesome. I know that was me, but <laughs> no, it was beautiful. I loved it. Okay. So when I talk about holding space, I am, so the, so it's it's not only holding space for others, but it's also holding space for ourselves. It is that process of being able to be still and to empathize and to listen to and 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 just to just to offer your presence to 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 yourself and to those in which you are trying to hold space for them. It's not about like exactly what you were just saying about going and doing and hurrying and scheduling and and just doing all the things like those those things take away from that ability to hold that space but when we can when we can slow down and and to be able to hold that space for for others i think it does allow for us to connect much more intentionally and completely with others without the distractions of all the other things that are trying to to catch our attention. Some of what you were mentioning before around like the productivity, the overproductivity, that has definitely been woven into the last few years of my journey (laughs) in terms of recognizing, you know, as Henry Nowen says, I'm not what I have. I'm not what I do. And I'm not what other people think of me, that I am the beloved. And that understanding that Henry Nowen has written into a great deal of his work has helped me to start to pull back the layers of the lies that are so deeply embedded within our culture that the more productive I am, the more value I have, or the more I do, the more worth I have. And and that is, I mean, we are beloved as we are, completely aside from anything we have, anything we do, any of that. It, we, I mean, Wissy, you and I, we had value and belonging and belovedness, you know, before anybody else had an opinion. And so 
I I think, and I know that Henry Nowen was good friends with Fred Rogers, and so yeah, I'm so I, I I should pair the fact that you know when as I was really diving more and more into Henry Nowen's work, reading him actually on a daily basis before I mm. practiced centering prayer each morning, I, I was did like, that too. I oh, did you that did. Too, but yeah, I I could not. If people have not heard of Henry Nowen, he is. I felt like every time I read him, something changed for me. I, it was just, mm-hmm. I, he was so special to Fred and I have this great picture of them. And it's just so inspiring to me because he was all about, well, actually he, he lived with severely uh, handicapped people. He chose to live in a community of people that were, that had disabilities mm-hmm. and served them and loved them. And, I think that was incredibly inspiring to Fred as well, that he was willing to do without so that he could have more of God, more of what he wanted, which was that sacredness of being near his Jesus is how. Yeah. So, yes, I was, I was smiling when you brought him up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love that. I mean, even his, his writings about what you were just talking about, the community that he lived with, I mean, they they really helped him to to see that belovedness that each of us bear mm-hmm. and carry within us and as i was going you know as i really started reading henry nowen's work each day before my centering prayer practice that was also a season in which every night was fred rogers night in our household and everyone yeah every wednesday night while my husband served our church for for one of the ministries that they had my children and i would watch every episode of fred rogers that was posted on amazon prime and Good girl. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, Fred Rogers means a lot in our home. I also, I don't, I don't know if I've told you, no, maybe I have told you this, that each night before bed, like since this pandemic started, every night before our kids go to bed, you know, we say our prayers and then the way that our hallway is situated, it's it's kind of cornered so that I can see both kids standing in this one corner. And so they always want to sing Old MacDonald because they always want to pick an animal. And then after that, we always sing the closing song for Mr. Rogers. And that's the last thing that we do as a family before they go to bed is we end the day with that song. Yeah. But routine and ritual for them. And yeah. so Doing that, that is so good for them. Children thrive with routines and rituals. So the crazier our schedules are, it's not helping our kids. And they are feeling that chaos. They're feeling the stress. They're feeling the frustration when we're stuck in traffic and we're late. I hated being late when I was little. And it always seemed like we were late, right? So I just think uh, there's such sacredness in being quiet and still and appreciating. Yeah. Appreciator of each other and of less. <laughs> yeah. No, I I am absolutely with you. I think it's it is it is not an easy journey to navigate that. And I don't think as as difficult as it is, I don't think this is a journey that we can necessarily plan for or control. I think at least that's been my experience. It just, it has felt like these layers 
that have of of awareness that have slowly been been peeling back and that I've been fortunate enough to get to learn from a number of different voices over the years whose whose wisdom seems to come at the exact time that I need it and usually comes alongside another voice that that pairs with it to yeah to to help kind of with that understanding of the value of slowing down and and that productivity is not the ultimate goal and and even with you know as i mentioned singing that song with my kids each night it's also just to remind my my children as well as myself that you know that we have that that inherent belovedness and 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 that we love each other as we are and and it is so funny cuz the very end of the song we we the kids and I get really excited with the because it's you I like and we like point to each person and they usually will like add in some other people that they like too in that celebration but it's i mean it's 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 all of that it's the yeah. And I'm grateful that at least for our family and I, that we've, we have been able to have that opportunity to begin to recognize the value of, of slowing down and holding that space for one another and for ourselves. I recognize that, that there are many folks for whom that may not be possible for a number of reasons, or it may not feel possible right now. And so I, I would want to encourage folks who, you know, may be hearing some of this and thinking like, oh, well, I, I don't know how I can do that to just begin very slowly by finding small pockets of time, whether it's, you know, two or three minutes here or there to just be and it not be just a, a massive shift overnight, but that maybe it's a slow, gradual recapturing of the time that you have for you and for those around you. I love that. It, it is. It's just those little tiny pockets of time. You know, we always make choices, right? Maybe it's it's just not picking up your phone one or two times throughout the day and instead just sitting and quietly grounding yourself with your senses. What are you, what am I hearing, smelling, seeing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. just something really simple like that. So I was thinking about through the practice of, of self-care, what you would encourage educators and caregivers to do in the next couple weeks, you know, we're heading kind of into holiday season as far as getting closer to Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it might not look the same. But also for me, I know we're going into hybrid on Monday. And Mm. so my class in masks, six feet apart, which I'm kind of interested to see what's going to happen with kindergartners. (laughs) But Mm. what, what are the simple and deep things that you could tell educators for this practice of self-care? What are some of your, your, obviously I would encourage everybody to sign up for your uh, self-care for helpers at your website, which we will make sure that that's attached, but just some, maybe like you said, some practical steps, like those, those pockets of time. I think that's a good one. What can you think of a couple others that you would suggest? Oh gosh. Yeah, absolutely. So First, I, I do want to elevate that you are absolutely right. We are moving into the holidays. We are also, you know, coming 
off of a very a very difficult and, and complex election cycle is what I'll say is a very complex election cycle. And so there's stressors with that. But also we're moving into the season in which seasonal affective disorder is going to start to climb as we move into the colder months, in addition to what we would anticipate or what you're hearing from experts around COVID. And I know that Mental Health America just recently released something that had shown that the mental health needs of this year have gone up substantially compared to previous years. And so I first just want to normalize and elevate the awareness that what we are navigating right now is unique and we cannot move through the months ahead as if everything is operating as usual because things are not usual. And so there is a level of gentleness, of patience, of just kindness to yourself and to others and grace that is needed. And so I first want to just elevate that to, to, to move slowly through these weeks ahead and not try to just push through them like as if everything is fine, because we need that margin for the transitions because those transitions alone take energy. Like what you were saying about you moving back into in-person classroom with with kindergartners, there's a lot of transition that's going to be happening there for you and the kiddos as well and the parents. So that's, that's important to, to note. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I think, I think some, some very, at least some tangible takeaways and some nuggets in it. I appreciate you elevating for folks to sign up because there's going to be a number of options and ideas that I have within those, uh, that week of emails that I mentioned, but even just ensuring that folks are getting eight hours of sleep each night. I mean, sleep is so important. And I have a colleague at Baylor who um, really has done quite a bit of research on the cognitive impact of sleep. And we need to be getting, I mean, sleep is super important. So ensuring that we're getting you know, eight hours of sleep each night to the best of our ability. Nav, you know, I had mentioned carving out a few moments here and there to just be still. Practicing deep breathing exercises that really do help us by breathing into our bellies to a count of four and then breathing out slowly as if we are blowing on hot soup to a count of six. I know some folks will advocate to breathe in and hold it And I actually don't like that idea because it tenses our muscles. So I would recommend breathing in to a count of four and then just releasing it to a count of six. So those are a few paying attention to, you know, the the food and drink you consume, the amount of caffeine or alcohol that you consume, because we do know that those things impact us. And for as much as we're carrying right now, those, you know, those might be impacting us in ways that that hurt us more than we might realize. Of course, finding a, a way to, to engage in some kind of movement for our bodies that is in alignment with what our doctors would recommend or what we feel comfortable with, whether that's going for a walk or yoga or a bike ride or, or whatever it is that feels good for you. And then, you know, I do elevate the importance of spiritual practices, regardless of what folks believe in, because I think, especially in this season of uncertainty, it is important to have 
a sense of groundedness in something bigger than ourselves to help move through the difficulties of these days. And so whether that's centering prayer or walking a labyrinth or reading your sacred text or listening to some spiritual music, those can be some things as well. But then last, I would say for sure, do not lose sight of, you know, well, actually two more things. One, don't lose sight of your loved ones. Reach out to check in on one another, but then also it's okay to ask for help from your loved ones too. Um, especially as you noted, you know, how difficult these, these weeks and months ahead are or will be. But then the last thing I really do want to know is that if any of your listeners start to recognize ways in which their moods are changing, their sleep is changing, or their diet or appetite is changing drastically, there is absolutely nothing wrong with going and seeking help from a mental health, a licensed mental health care provider, whether that's a psychologist, a a clinical social worker, a counselor, um, a therapist. We do know from the data that about 80% of us will meet criteria for a diagnosable mental illness, whether that's by young adulthood or middle age. And so it is really important to to reach out and talk with a mental health care provider if that's needed. And if it gets to a point where it really does feel extremely difficult to cope with the current circumstances, there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which that number is 1-800-273-8255. Or there's the National Crisis Text Line, which you would text home, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. And I just think it's important for us to hang on to some of those tools these days. And maybe not necessarily only for ourselves, but certainly if we hear from others that are struggling too. That is wonderful. Those were more than just a few nuggets. I'm impressed. (laughs) Thank you. Right out of you like water. You're like, and there you go. Mm, thank you. <laughs> I just am so grateful to have great friends like you and that you were willing to take the time to do this. And, you know, the whole premise of this podcast is based on Fred Rogers quote, simple and deep is far more essential than shallow and complex. And I think that we have a lot of complex things going on and we don't need a lot of complex answers. I think we need those little tiny, simple nuggets and reminders like, drink water, get sleep. But those mm-hmm. put to the side. We think we're doing more by staying up till the crack of dawn when actually we would be doing better if we just rested. And I am just thankful for all that you've shared today. And I know that our listeners are as well. So in conclusion, I just want to thank you and tell you that you are loved as well. And I look forward to having you back on here sometime, Holly. Oh, thank you so much, Wissy. I was honored by this opportunity and I'm so grateful for your presence and for your willingness to serve so many others through this podcast, reminding us the value of um, Simple and Deep. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And once again, go ahead and let our listeners know where they can find you. Oh, sure. So um, your listeners can find me at hollyoxhandler.com. And I am on all social media platforms at Holly Oxhandler. Wonderful. Thanks again, Holly. Yep. Thank you, Wistie. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Simple and Deep. Make sure that you visit my website, wisteriaedwards.com, where you can subscribe to receive updates about my upcoming book, Waiting for Mr. Rogers. And while you're at it, if you found value in the show, I'd appreciate you giving it a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to it, or simply tell a friend about the show too. That would be a great help. Till next time, take care.